Well, do you have a phobia? Perhaps you struggle with xanthophobia, the fear of the color yellow. Or, or maybe uh, turophobia torments you, the fear of cheese. Omphalophobia is especially frightening, the fear of the belly button. And I'm sure uh, many of us can be controlled by nomophobia, the fear of being without cell phone coverage. So according to the Telegraph, nomophobia is brought on by the fear of losing signal, running out of battery, or even losing sight of a mobile phone. Can you relate? You've probably, this isn't the first time you've probably done this, making light of phobias because they seem all over the place. But I think many of us make fun of phobias sort of treading softly because we all struggle with fear. And some of us struggle with fears that seem just as strange or stranger than these. And we can be afraid to let anybody in on those secrets. But unlike those fears I just listed, which some of us may have, others not as much, one fear every single human being faces is thanatophobia, the fear of death. Maybe you wouldn't be psychologically diagnosed with thanatophobia, but all of us understand it, right? Death is the end of the line for us. Everything else in life we might be able to try to maneuver or control or endure, but not death. Death is the inevitable enemy. Or is it? It's inevitable for sure. But does it need to be the enemy that's inevitable? In the passage Jane just read for us from Philippians chapter 1, I think we should, and I think we will all be struck by the posture the Apostle Paul takes in light of death. So he does not struggle with the fear of that inevitable end. Instead, as we just sung moments ago, Paul's heart reverberates with this truth that it is not death to die for the Christian. For Paul... Completely on the contrary, death is gain. Death is entrance into life. What's Paul saying? I'm looking forward to digging digging into this passage with you this morning, but just a brief refresher. Uh, We've been, been in the book of Philippians for three weeks now. This is our third study. Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi a city that's now in modern-day Greece. Uh, Paul is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome while writing this letter. It's around 60 AD, and the Philippian church, which he had helped to start, to plant about a decade earlier on one of his missionary journeys, has heard that he's come into trouble, and so they've sent a man named Epaphroditus to check on Paul in Rome. Sounds like something else you'd be diagnosed with, right? Epaphroditus. We'll, we'll think more about him later. He's a good guy. Uh, but now Paul has heard from this guy, and, and this letter is him kind of sending back thanks to the church for their concern and for their help. And while he's giving them thanks, he's also going to provide an update on how he's doing. Last week, we saw that in prison, writing to the Philippians, he's actually super encouraged. 
So even in his suffering, he's telling the Philippians, the gospel of Christ, believe it or not, is advancing. And in the verses we're looking at today, Paul continues on this theme of kind of joy in his present suffering. And he's showing that his joy is not limited or just focused only on kind of his present circumstances and how God's working through the hardship of imprisonment. But he's also kind of turning his eyes to the future and showing that his joy is also in what he knows God has in store for him. So we're going to dig into these verses now, and let's do so in three sections that will get progressively shorter. Three sections, all beginning with the letter D, deliverance, dilemma, decision. Deliverance, dilemma, decision. So first, deliverance. So Paul has just, like we just said, expressed this joy in God's sovereignty over his sufferings, and now he continues on kind of without a break from last week when the text we saw last week, and he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. So Paul says he's so thankful for the prayers of the Philippian church and how those prayers are being used by God to give him strength through the Holy Spirit. That's an application in and of itself, the the power of Christians praying for one another. And and he's confident and joy-filled because he says this is going to turn out for his deliverance. And I think on face value, when you're reading the text, you're thinking, oh, he's talking about his deliverance from house arrest in Rome. But I think he has something bigger in mind here. The word he uses for deliverance, it has the same meaning as salvation. I think Paul is is considering more than merely a potential rescue from his current incarceration. He's thinking also of God's kind of big work of deliverance, his big work of salvation that he has promised to and will most certainly accomplish in Paul's soul, whether in life or in death. And there in verse 21, Paul speaks of a foundational truth, the foundational truth that orients his life. This is the kind of Paul slogan for his heart that roots him, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of fear. And this, church, is not an utterance for Paul, the super-Christian. This is the utterance of anyone who would follow after Christ. This is your slogan, Christian. Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is a truth Paul covers in a lot of his different writings in the New Testament. I'll give you one example from Galatians 2.20 that kind of echoes this same theme. There in Galatians, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For Paul, being united to Christ has not just changed his religious affiliation, although it has. It has not just secured his eternal state, 
though it has. For Paul, being united to Christ has changed the identity of his very soul. And so his purpose now in life, in all of life, is to bring glory to the Savior who has delivered him. He is united to Christ in his life and in his death. Because apart from Jesus, Paul has no life. Dear church, we need to be challenged by this statement this morning. Christian, the, call, the gospel is a call on your life, not just your Sunday. This Savior requires your soul, not just your religious observance. This Savior's call on your life, his rule over your life, is all-encompassing. His salvation of your soul, Christian, is total, and his worthiness of your worship is comprehensive. Elsewhere, Paul writes of the Christian response to God's mercy in the gospel of Jesus as the laying down of our lives as sacrifices in worship. Sacrifices are not partial, they are complete. This is all-inclusive language. If you're a teenager and you've grown up in the church and maybe you find yourself this morning kind of in a time where you're trying to figure out if you really believe what your parents have taught you about this Christianity, here's at least one thing to help you along in that process. Just to get this clear. If you want to follow Jesus... You can't simply add him onto your life agenda, your future strategic plan for your life, like you'd add an app onto your smartphone. If you decide to follow Jesus, even apart from what your parents have said, you specifically want to follow Jesus, you need to be all in with Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of the world. His loving salvation of his people necessarily controls everything in our lives. So much so that later in chapter 3, Paul will say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Teens, Christians of all ages, is that the kind of life you're living? Is this the faith you're seeking to mature in? To live as Christ? Well, Paul's next words in his life slogan may help you answer that question. See, not only is life Christ for Paul, but that means that also death is gain for Paul. Because of Christ and Christ alone, only Christ is the permeating meaning of Paul's life. Then that means death, when he will meet and be with Christ, is no longer the enemy for the apostle. But it's merely the road to his complete fulfillment, to the embrace of his Savior. For Paul... The way he's living his life, at the time of death, he won't lose out on his investments. He'll cash them in. He's living for Jesus. So death is no longer his foe, it's his friend. Friend, this is not some weird, twisted, positive thinking. This is the reality of the Christian life. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. The Christian believes in the one, the Savior, who has beaten death and secured eternity. 
And so on the GPS of his life, Paul's destination is always entered in as Christ. Always Christ. And so that destination of Jesus flavors everything he does in life. Every stopping point along the way to that destination reminds him, this is for Christ. Right here is for Christ because I'm merely passing through on the way to Christ. And the sooner the ETA to heaven, the better. Jesus is everything for Paul. Jesus ought to be everything for the Christian. Sin still clings closely, but it must become increasingly discordant to our ears. The foreign language we're we're trying to understand. Because we find Jesus increasingly to be all we need. For Paul, his life is Christ. If you read through the letter of Philippians, it only takes you about 15 minutes. I bet as Christians, a lot of us would read Philippians and kind of be a little jealous of Paul. Because he just sounds so happy. Just wishing you could have some of that same resolve, some of that same joy in your life as a follower of Jesus. I think if you kind of went to Paul and said, this is how I feel, I feel a little insecure in my faith right now. He would not point you ultimately to himself. He would point you again to Jesus. And he would say, you know, the Jesus I was worshiping and talking about here in 60 AD is your Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Christian, put verse 21 in the first person for you right now. Does that work? Can you do that? Can you say to yourself right now, not just for Paul, but for to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. I had to ask myself that question this week, and I continue to ask myself that question because it's a challenging one. Is it true, Christian, that for you to live as Christ and to die is gain? Or are other things you're encountering along the, the road to that destination of Jesus Christ kind of distracting you from that goal? You're taking exit ramps far too often and ignoring where you're headed. Maybe you're, maybe you're tempted, like I often am, to substitute other things into that sentence instead of Christ. Maybe for you, you might at times say something like, for to me to live is wealth, and to die is to lose everything I've worked so hard for. Or for to me, to live is pleasure, and to die is to be cut off from that source of joy. Or for to me, to live is a good retirement, and so to die would be to cut short what I've lived for. Or for to me, to live is knowledge, and to die is to come to the end of my pursuit of it. For to me, to live is adventure, and to die is to be deprived of any energy or excitement. Maybe you're unmarried or you don't have children and you think for to me to live is marriage and, and family and so to die is to give up any hope that that could ever happen. Please, Jesus, don't come back until I can do that. Christian, what is your slogan? What is your goal? Who is your destination? Is it Jesus or is he just merely the one helping you get there? If anyone or anything except Christ is the destination of your life and your meaning, you're never going to find life or meaning. 
for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. The author Frank Thielman uh, tells the story of a, an Iranian Christian named Mehdi Dibaj. In 1984, uh, Mehdi was imprisoned in Iran on charges of apostasy since he had converted from Islam to Christianity. And Thielman writes, he says, the penalty for this crime, according to the Islamic law that ruled Iran, was death. Mehdi languished in prison for 10 years before his case came to trial. When it did, his written statement of defense was a simple and straightforward reaffirmation of commitment to Jesus Christ. Here's part of what Mehdi said facing death 20 years ago in Iran. He said, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Sounds familiar, right? Medi's words uttered almost 2,000 years after Paul's reflect the same commitment to Jesus above all. And for both of them, indirectly with Medi, for both of them, it would cost them their lives. What about you? Christian, this is not merely a call to follow a religious leader into blind submission. This is a call from a Savior who has laid down his life as a sacrifice for you. It's a call for you to find your ultimate meaning, not in the things that will be fading away in your life, but in his eternal, secure salvation and love. Paul knows that whether he lives or dies, he will ultimately be saved, delivered into the presence of his Savior forevermore. That's his ultimate hope of deliverance. That's ultimately the true deliverance for anyone in Christ. Deliverance. Second thing we see in this text then is dilemma. And this is the logical continuation of Paul's life slogan. So for Paul, if to live is Christ and to die is gain... Now that he's being faced with possible death, he's really torn as to what's best. So he says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's like he's arguing with himself. It's like a little golem going on here, right? And it's funny because a, a dilemma is usually a, a, a conundrum we face between two less than desirable outcomes, right? The lesser of two evils. That's what a dilemma is usually. But for Paul, it's not that way. 
He has two great goods in front of him, and he's trying to decide which one is best. But either way, in either of these two eventualities, he's confident that God will show him grace. In death, he'll see Jesus. That will be the culmination of his salvation. That will be the pinnacle of everything he's been living for, suffering for. But in life, he'll be able to serve the church that he loves so dearly, that he said in the opening verses, he yearns for. And, and if he lives, you know, he's still going to get to heaven. It'll, that'll be postponed. Seeing Jesus will be postponed, but not indefinitely. It'll come. So what's best? Paul's letting us in on this kind of inner struggle in his mind, this tug of war raging inside his soul. This isn't something he's just kind of journaling about kind of lackadaisically in his house arrest. He's struggling. Have you ever struggled like that? Has this ever even been a question for you? Have you ever felt this kind of extreme desire to be with Jesus? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. You haven't trusted in Jesus for salvation, so this seems a bit like kind of religious groupthink, kind of a wishful thinking to get away from the sufferings of life. Have you ever considered, though, that any assumption you're making about life after death requires faith from you? No one has ever been on the other side of death and lived to tell the story back here. No one that is except Jesus. The Bible teaches in ancient history helps corroborate the fact that Jesus died and rose again. He has the power to roll back death. He's seen the other side. And he's come back the victor. So if you dismiss Christianity as kind of just wishful thinking, I wonder if trusting in a savior like this is really as far-fetched as you might think. And dear friend, if you're here as an unbeliever, we're so thankful you're here because I think we think Philippians actually gives us a really good glimpse of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not, first and foremost, a set of rules. It's not even, first and foremost, a way of getting into heaven. Christianity is called Christianity because our faith is not about something that will happen to us, ultimately. It's not about something we do, ultimately. It's about a person who exists, whether we do or not. Christianity is about Jesus. See, when we had rebelled against God in our sin and rejected his good rule in our lives, which each of us has done, we deserved God's righteous judgment for that. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, he did more than suffer a martyr's death. He did more than just show us an example of sacrificial love. Jesus took the penalty, the punishment of our sin on himself. And he bore God's wrath for us so we could be set free. We could be forgiven. We could be delivered, saved. That's what Christianity is about. That's the good news of the gospel that we proclaim. That's why Christians love Jesus so much. 
That's why we strive to love him more than life itself. That's why Paul can say Christ is all, everything to him. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, please call us out. If you ever feel like we're calling you to mere religious affiliation. Or even mere obedience to God. We hope to call you to a person who has loved you and laid down his life for you. A person to whom if you will turn, repenting of your sin and placing your faith in him, you will be saved. And dear brothers and sisters, Christians here this morning, the applications in this passage are abundant. But an obvious one right off the cuff that we should see is that we want more of Paul's eager expectation for heaven. Don't we? I mean, he's experiencing here a conundrum many of us rarely face and less talk about. Because our lives are often so full of things we're tempted to see as ultimate. Comfort, job security, future, healthy family. And Paul says, Okay, fine and good to like to appreciate those things, but this life, folks, this life has nothing on what's to come. He says, for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. Like one author said, the best day for the Christian life is the last day of the Christian life. I mean, do we ever think like that? I often do not. Paul says this is what liberates him to suffer for the sake of Christ. That this world is not our home. We long for another. He'll say later in the letter, our citizenship is in heaven. And so for us, death is not something that Jesus has just kind of made bearable. Death is gain. Death means we see him forever. Christian, what's kind of on your pros and cons list when you think about death. There are plenty of cons. Death is not a good thing, right? Death is a result of sin. It's tragic. It's sorrowful. It separates us. But do your pros pros outweigh out I'm going to try to say this again. Do your pros outweigh the cons? Does heaven just seem wonderful to you? Remember kind of like when you take off on an airplane, you kind of hit the clouds and go above them. Like, I think a lot of us still think of heaven like that. Like this fluffy, kind of disembodied dream state. And it's not. Christian, hear it again. Heaven is true, abundant, physical existence in the presence of our Savior. It's great. It's complete fulfillment of all our greatest desires. Heaven is home. Do you long for it? Have you trained your spiritual appetite to long for it? Earlier, Noah read for us from another part of Paul's writings. Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the home body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For Paul, understanding eternity, understanding life and death in this way clarifies everything he does on earth. 
clarifies his gaze, clarifies where he's going to prioritize. It gives him, it gives us, Christian, a destination and then kind of gives us the fuel to get there. So, Christian, are you thinking about heaven? Are you pondering it, meditating on it? Biblical scholars point out that the word there for depart, so Paul says he has a desire to depart, it kind of has a sense of a, of a person taking down a campsite. So it, it doesn't have that kind of sense of finality that we often ascribe to death, right? It's more of like taking down a, a camp spot that was definitely meant to be temporary. You don't want to live forever in that thing, and you want to go on to the next thing. As a Christian, death is a departing from what was temporary to something that is so much more permanent and joyous and beautiful. And for the Christian, that destination is just around the bend. Alec Mateer puts it this way. He says, for Paul, camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Christ. Christian, think of heaven like that. Use that truth, that way of thinking, to fight the sinful fear that will inevitably come to you, the sinful fear of death. So in thoughts of death and the uncertainty of it and when it will come and how it will come, when all those things flood your mind, when you can become thanatophobic in more of a general way, look to Jesus. Talk to others. They're experiencing it too. Don't ignore your fear. Don't seek to distract it. Address these big questions of meaning and eternity and use those questions and the, the pursuit of answering those questions to kind of stoke your thirst for heaven. And if you're not a Christian, how tragic and unwise would it be to leave those sorts of questions unanswered while you still had time to consider them? Wrestle with thoughts of what's to come. We pray that you would find ultimate rest in the one who made you to find your joy in eternity with him. Deliverance, dilemma, finally and more briefly, decision. Paul writes in verse 24, and we see he comes to a conclusion. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, Persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It, it doesn't seem, even though Paul talks with so much confidence, it doesn't seem like he has received any special revelation about whether he's going to live or die. So he says he wants to glorify Christ whether he lives or dies. So I don't think we we can say he's pretty sure he's going to be released, or he's, he's confident that he, that he will be released. But I do think he's pretty sure. He's not confident, but I do think he's pretty sure. He seems that way. He seems to think that after praying about this and thinking about this, it does seem to be the wisest course, the best idea, and perhaps what God has in mind for Paul to get out of this and to continue ministering. And eventually, he'll be proven right. He will be released although several years later he will be executed finally for Christ. But notice what's kind of informing the decision he needs to make here. 
for his own heart. So he desperately wants to be with Jesus. That's all we've been talking about. But he knows that remaining in this life will bring glory to Christ. He knows that God will continue to use his ministry and his weakness to further the advance of the gospel. And so in this text, Paul does die to himself. He dies to his own desires. And he's persuaded that living for the good of the church and the glory of God will be what's best. Like we talked about last week, this is Paul showing at what he will be teaching. He's showing the Philippians what he's going to exhort them to do starting next week. He'll be teaching them to live out the gospel by loving one another, by putting others' needs ahead of their own. He will urge unity and sacrifice in the life of the church through gospel love. And so part of the reason he's letting the Philippians in on his own inner soul wrestling match is to provide an example for them of how to live humbly and selflessly for Jesus. He says he's convinced he'll remain. This is what's best. Why? Three reasons. For their progress, their joy in the faith, and so that they might glory in Jesus because of Paul's testimony. That last part has the idea of boasting. Boasting not in Paul, but in what Jesus has done through Paul. So Paul has faced this decision, right? Deliverance is assured regardless. He has this dilemma, and he's made the decision. He's made the call between what's far better and what's more necessary. And for now, he's become persuaded he must do what's best for the church though not necessarily what's best for himself. Obviously, this is all in God's hands. Paul knows he's not making this decision. But he's pretty convinced this will be the way it works out, and he's right. He will go on to serve and minister for the gospel for years before his execution. What does this mean for us as a church? Well, it means what will increasingly become the applications of our sermons going forward in this letter. And that is that this selfless love is something Christ produces in all who follow him. This love is not made possible by human instinct. It's not something we coerce or manufacture. This is the kind of sacrificial love and others-mindedness that only the gospel of Christ creates. And so Paul will continually even through his testimony and his heart witness, show them that Christ is all. As Paul continues in his testimony or in his ministry, he'll continue to rejoice like we saw last week, that God gets the credit, God gets the glory, and eventually he will be with his glorious Savior. So one commentator writes, the needs of the church here are met by a love which for the present is willing to postpone heavenly glories. Postpone heavenly glories. Looking ahead to the passage next week, isn't that going to be shown wonderfully in Christ? Who postponed heavenly glories for himself to take on the form of a servant 
to lay down his life for us. Church, what a passage, what a letter. So as we leave it this morning, remember you're going to die. Provided Jesus doesn't return first. Do you ever think about dying? Do you ignore it? Are you afraid of it? Welcome to the group. Church, let's lift our heads and look to Christ, the defeater of death. Whether we live or die, we have him. Death doesn't take him away from us. It introduces us into his presence. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He has saved you and he will finish the job in you. And so while we wait to see him face to face, let us sing and forever proclaim that our boast is him. For us to live as Christ and to die will be gain. Let's pray. Lord, we are really grateful for this testimony from Paul for the conviction of his soul in prison, for this kind of life slogan that he shares with us. Lord, we ask that you would help us live and proclaim that all we have is Christ. Lord, we ask that you would help that to permeate and affect how we live and how we will die. We praise you for this comfort, assurance, and hope. Lord, we praise you. We, hear, we ask that you would hear our song now from joyful lips. Amen.